Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into this week's Spiked podcast, I just wanted to thank everyone who is currently donating to Spiked. Whether you've made a one-off donation or give monthly, it's thanks to your support that we're able to produce our challenging and fearless journalism. If you haven't donated, then why not get started today? It may not seem like much, but just £5 per month can have a transformative impact on our work, helping us to challenge the authoritarian climate we now find ourselves in. It's really easy to donate. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me we have Spiked's editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the beheading of Samuel Paty, the Northern Revolt against lockdown and the fight back against critical race theory. Thousands of people have taken part in rallies across France to express outrage at the beheading of a teacher. Police believe Samuel Paty was targeted because he showed people's controversial cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. And he was murdered because he decided to teach them of freedom. Many Muslims are simply asking that hate laws are simply implemented to protect them from hateful material. France is still in mourning for the French school teacher Samuel Paty, who was beheaded in broad daylight by an Islamist. Word had spread that Paty had shown a cartoon of Mohammed to his pupils in a class about freedom of expression. French President Emmanuel Macron described Paty as a symbol of reason and of freedom, while awarding him the Légion d'honneur, France's highest civilian accolade. The attack came just weeks after Macron had vowed to take decisive action against France's problem with Islamist extremism. Islamist terror attacks have killed over 240 people in France since 2015, when terrorists raided the offices of satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo. Brendan, what are your thoughts on this attack? I think there are two things about it that are deeply disturbing. The first, of course, is the attack itself, which was just completely and utterly barbaric, even by the standards of Islamist attacks, it was particularly barbaric to single out a school teacher simply for teaching his kids about freedom of speech and to kill him in such a kind of medieval way, publicly beheading him as a kind of, you know, almost modern day inquisition, modern day execution for blasphemy against Muhammad. So the attack itself was just horrendous. And I think everyone was deeply shocked by it. But the other thing that was shocking to me was the lack of response. I mean, in France, there's been a huge response. As you say, Fraser, there was a big gathering at Place de Republique in Paris. And Macron, I think, has led things quite well over the past few days and has responded apart from his authoritarian clampdown on radical Islamists, which is itself a problem. I think he has guided the nation relatively well after this barbaric attack. But outside of France, in the UK, for example, there's been hardly any response. Of course, there's been lots of news coverage, but teaching unions only put out very perfunctory statements, and most of them were days after the event. The so-called anti-fascist left have said virtually nothing. There's a very palpable lack of outrage. There's a very palpable lack of 
solidarity being offered to the French Republic at a time when one of its public servants was so gruesomely executed. And I find that really disturbing. I think it it speaks to a trend these days where people feel very uncomfortable talking openly and frankly about Islamist terrorism or even mentioning the word Islamist in relation to terrorism. There's a real discomfort about grappling with this problem and confronting this problem. And as a consequence, something really shocking is happening, which is that the murder of Samuel Paty is already fading from the public consciousness in Europe, I feel. So it's this kind of double situation where on the one hand, the killing itself tells us something really disturbing about the nature of radical Islam. And the kind of cowardly, silent, craven response tells us something about the yellow-bellied nature of contemporary European society. Yeah. And I wanted to talk a bit about the Islamist uh, element at first. I mean, because Macron has been warning about what he called Islamist separatism for a while. He made a major intervention only a few weeks ago, where he said that Islamists were in danger of creating a counter society, which are contrary to the values and the ideals of the French Republic. And, And this attack surely illustrates his point very clearly. You know, this beheading didn't occur in a vacuum. It wasn't the result of just one errant nutcase. You know, this happened because the father of one of Patty's pupils, a girl who actually wasn't in the class, but her father started an online kind of hate campaign, managed to enlist the help of a well-known local radical. Mosques in Paris were publishing videos on their Facebook pages, railing against Patty the blasphemer, telling people his name, publishing details about the school. You know, so clearly a great deal of anger and religious fervor had been whipped up. You know, this murder didn't come out of nowhere. It wasn't an act of wanton madness, but it was a kind of cruel act of vengeance. It was it was designed to chill the expression of blasphemy. And that's why, you know, as you you mentioned briefly, Brenda, the authoritarian clampdown from the French state. I mean, that's very disheartening. But, you know, the response in France to see so many people rally together in solidarity with Paty, some of Macron's speeches have been incredibly powerful on this. I I think, you know, the only response to this can be a kind of forthright defence of, for want of a better word, Western values, Enlightenment values, and especially, you know, those all-important values of the French Republic, liberty, equality, and, and brotherhood. You know, what better defense against barbarism is there, Ella. But the problem is that hasn't been the only defense. And the thing Mm. that has been really upsetting and shocking is that many people haven't seemed to have learned from previous terror attacks, you know, terror attacks in Paris, because there's a direct line from 2015 and the first attack on the Charlie Hebdo office through to the second attack with the meat cleavers to Patty's murder. But still people are coming out and saying, yes, this was a really terrible event, really awful, we should condemn it, but, and there's been too many buts Mm. in the middle of people's sentences. I listened to Radio 4 on Sunday and Nabila Ramdani was on, who's a French-Algerian journalist, well-known journalist. And she spent the first half of the interview talking about how horrific it was that Patty had been beheaded on the streets and how everybody should condemn this. And then she said, but... Isn't it also a terrible shame that Muslims have to put up with Charlie Abdo portraying them as cretins with their balls out, that they have their religious figures mocked, you know, like as if it was equivalent. It, mm. it was really shocking. It was as if you could compare the two things. And that's part of the problem is that the reason why there is still 
a dangerous level of Islamism, particularly in and around Paris in France, is because there hasn't been a complete and unified condemnation of the attacks. And there also hasn't been a sort of no ifs, no buts response to the ability of people to mock religion. I mean, as it happens, you have to keep pointing out to people, but he wasn't mocking Mohammed. He he was using it as an educational tool. Part of the difficulty in wrapping your head around this attack is because it is so unhinged. You know, we've had attacks on strangers at pop concerts that people have, you know, innocent people having pints in the streets of London. But this was, it's an attack that's focused around blocking freedom of speech. It's not kind of random. It's very planned. And so then to equivocate on saying, yes, but we also have to consider where Charlie Hebdo is wrong. It's just the darkest, actually most evil thing that I've heard. It's really shocking. So, you know, that's the depressing side of this, which is that always this gets wrapped up in a conversation of what is the blame from the other side? You know, should Patty have been doing this? People asking questions of should Charlie Hebdo still be publishing these kind of cartoons? And that just shows you that there is a dangerous disbelief in freedom. And this is exactly what these kinds of terror attacks are designed to do. They're designed to not just behead someone in the street in the immediate event of the attack, but having a lasting effect in which a belief in freedom, a defense of secularism gets undermined. Brendan? I think if we just cast our minds back to the massacre at Charlie Hebdo in 2015, the response was really staggering. I mean, first there was the very positive response, Je suis Charlie, and the largest demonstrations in French history, huge numbers taking to the streets, and there was a sense of international solidarity, but it was very brief, and it was also a bit partial. And what it then turned into was this sense, well, you know, Charlie Hebdo goes too far. It punches down. Muslims are an oppressed minority and therefore to criticise their religion is far worse than if you criticise Christianity, for example. All sorts of excuse making. And then we had a situation where really well-known novelists in the US criticised Penn America because it wanted to give a bravery reward to Charlie Hebdo. This sense of discomfort with the magazine and, and this sense almost of victim blaming and a real palpable idea took hold, which is, well, you know, if Charlie Hebdo didn't make such grotesque fun of Islam, then its writers and cartoonists might still be alive. You know, you brought this on yourself. It was like the aftermath of the fatwa against Salman Rushdie, but on steroids, because what happened is the intellectual elites just failed to stand shoulder to shoulder with this satirical magazine, which was exercising its right to mock all faiths. And the failure of the intellectual elites to do that again and again in relation to Salman Rushdie, in relation to Charlie Hebdo, and now in relation to Samuel Paty, a school teacher who was teaching his children about freedom of speech, if you can't make a strong stand on that, then we're in serious trouble. And I think the failure of the cultural elites and others to to make that stand and to say, listen, freedom of speech is an absolute and it will not be attacked by these psychopaths, these Islamist psychopaths, the failure of them to do that is, as Ella says, it's just exacerbating the problem because it implicitly gives a green light to this kind of behavior. Because if mainstream society says that criticizing Islam is really bad and insulting and punching down, then of course some radical Islamists are going to take that to heart and visit punishment upon the blasphemers. So there's an, there's an interplay between those two things. And the way we described it on Spiked this week is that the killing of Patti was really 
a violent manifestation of cancel culture because what you had here was a really gruesome enactment of an idea that is actually really mainstream, which is that certain offensive forms of speech should not be allowed, especially offensive speech against Muslims. And the people who carry these things out deserve to be punished, whether by being sacked, no platformed, or in the eyes of these killers, killed. So two things need to happen. Firstly, the French state and every other European state needs to take the threat of Islamic terrorism really, really seriously and break up its networks and arrest the people who are planning attacks. But secondly, the intellectual elites in Europe have got to get more serious about freedom of speech and start defending people who are being censored and attacked. And one thing that citizens can do to add on to what Brendan's just said is in the immediate here and now defend the right to mock religion because there is a brilliant history of religious satire from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales right up to Billy Idol's song, you know, I don't care if it rains or freezes as long as I've got my plastic Jesus. I mean, these are things that if you are particularly religious will upset you, but everyone should be allowed to do it. And it has to be said that Charlie Hebdo doesn't discriminate when it comes to religion. They've had front pages with the Virgin Mary's vagina on the front of it. I mean, what can citizens do to push back on this is defend the right to take the piss out of Muhammad's God, Jesus, whoever it is. Sometimes you're really excited about a new movie or TV show but it's not something you're supposed to stream where you are. Maybe you're in the UK and the latest US release won't be out for months. Or maybe you've travelled abroad and you can't access streaming services from your own country. But it doesn't have to be like that. You can use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. So something I really enjoyed streaming recently was South Park's Pandemic Special, which is free to stream if you live in the US but you can't really access if you're in the UK. With ExpressVPN, you don't have to live in the US to access US content. ExpressVPN lets you change your online location so you can control where you want websites to think you're located. It's really easy to do. You open up the app, you select a location, you tap one button to connect, and then you refresh the page and you can access thousands of new shows and movies. With ExpressVPN, there's almost 100 different countries to choose from. Think of it as supercharging your Netflix subscription. So with ExpressVPN, you can watch The Dark Knight and Brooklyn Nine-Nine on Netflix Canada. You can watch Rick and Morty on French Netflix. Or if you're nostalgic for The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, you can find that on Australian Netflix. This works with any streaming service, whether it's Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. One service you could check out is Peacock. It's a free streaming service that's normally only available in the US, but you can just change your location to the US with ExpressVPN. I'd recommend ExpressVPN because it's so easy to set up and use. It doesn't interfere with your internet speed. You can stream HD no problem. There's no buffering or no lag. It's compatible with all your devices, your phones, your laptops, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. And not only does it let you change your location, it also encrypts your data and lets you surf the web safely and anonymously. And of course, because you're a listener to the Spikes podcast, you can get an extra special offer with our promo code. So go to expressvpn.com slash spiked to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. 
That's expressvpn.com slash spiked. This week, the government imposed its highest tier of restrictions on Greater Manchester and South Yorkshire. The two regions will join Liverpool in tier three, meaning that pubs and bars must close unless they can operate as restaurants. Households are not allowed to mix and people are advised against travelling in and out of these areas. Manchester's restrictions were imposed against the wishes of local leaders after 11 days of negotiations over a rescue package. Health Secretary Matt Hancock insisted that Greater Manchester's hospitals could soon be overwhelmed. But Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham accused him of using selective statistics. Ella, what have you made of this row brewing in the north? This has been a really incredible week. I haven't quite believed what I've been watching a lot of the time. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is that semi-press conference with Andy Burnham, who as a figure has, I've loved and hated him in the space of 24 hours. Because the interesting thing about Andy Burnham is that he is one of the local leaders in around Manchester that have been pushing back on the government, but sort of for all the wrong reasons. He makes a great points about the fact that the hospitals are not overwhelmed, that this crucial point, which everyone seems to have forgotten, which is that while cases are increasing in these areas, there is no evidence to show that they're increasing in pubs or in restaurants or in any of these COVID secure places. But then, you know, he has to toe the Labour Party line of the support for a national lockdown. He's not actually arguing for greater and lasting freedom for Manchester, but instead there's this kind of bitter row over which parts of the country get what amount of money. And that press conference really stuck out because for the Tories, this is, they must be pulling out their hair in terms of PR strategy because what it looked like was the North getting shafted by Westminster. And essentially that is, you know, what has happened to a certain extent because the failure of the government to come up with any kind of innovative way to have a focused approach with resources, with what kind of measures are needed in certain areas has meant that they are just battering areas and battering local people who live there. You know, it's not surprising that Andy Burnham has a huge amount of support for just even in a performative way, standing up to the government. The depressing thing is this has become almost all about a kind of money grabbing exercise. And obviously resources are incredibly important. We've pointed out on Spiked many, many times that the lockdown isn't just about saving lives. The consequences of it is that actually people's lives are deeply impacted physically, mentally, you know, and economically. But the kind of row between Robert Jenrick and Andy Burnham and others in in Manchester or other local leaders has turned into this kind of spat over five million here, five million there, in a way that actually the most important point reveals that this isn't a policy that the government's taking to save lives and protect the NHS, that actually this is political manoeuvring, which we knew all along, that this isn't just a strategy led purely by the science and all this is about is stopping cases of coronavirus. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's that what's happening is the government is making political decisions that are having great impact without the participation of citizens. They're relying on polls. They're not actually talking to anyone. That is disastrous. And so there's whispers going around as there always is about the national lockdown coming in. 
And the most depressing thing is that people just feel resigned to it because what can you do if the events that have happened in the last week of rows between Manchester, Liverpool and London can happen in this sort of bizarre pantomime way that they've happened, then it leaves you feeling really powerless. Brendan? Yeah, I think it's been a really revealing week in terms of lockdown and the entire COVID policy. And I think what's happening is that the tensions are starting to emerge in relation to the locking down of the country. And the furlough scheme for a period of time managed to suppress or disguise the economic destruction that was being unleashed by the government's response to COVID. But I think as furlough is eased and as we enter into this kind of patchwork of authoritarianism where different regions go under different rules, I think we're going to start to see some of the tensions being revealed and exposed and becoming more plain. The problem in relation to the discussion between Westminster and Manchester, I think it's been really interesting. I think it it demonstrates that the government is losing control, no longer enjoys genuine political or moral authority. I mean, the, the discussions between Westminster and Manchester were like the discussions between London and Brussels. It was like two foreign entities were engaging with each other rather than sections of the same country. So that kind of conflict cannot be underestimated. The importance of that conflict has to be, I think, taken on board. The problem is, the thing that's really stuck in my craw this whole week is that so many of the Labour activists and Labour politicians who are criticising the government for not giving Andy Burnham enough money, which is essentially all they're saying, they were all in favour of the first lockdown, which plunged so many people into joblessness, poverty and despair in the long term. Many of them want a second lockdown, or as they call it, the euphemism of a circuit breaker, which really just means a second national lockdown, which would plunge even more people into joblessness, poverty and despair. So the idea that they are standing up for ordinary people is a complete fantasy and ought to be really challenged by everyone who's who's genuinely interested in people's economic health and their freedom. And I think What's really frustrating is that some people are now trying to dress this up as a class issue. They're saying, oh, look, it's the South versus the North. And it it makes them feel that they're back on comfortable territory. You know, bad old Westminster bashing those working people in the North. It's time Labour stood up and defended them. That just doesn't wash because these are the same kinds of middle class, left wing, public sector types who were very happy to work from home for three or four months, very happy to leave working class people still stacking shelves, still delivering food, or losing their jobs entirely because they have been put into uncertainty by the COVID measures. So the idea that they are now standing up for the working people of the North or anywhere else just doesn't wash. And all that we need to argue now is that the measures have got to be lifted. There cannot be any more national lockdown. And we have got to start strategizing and thinking about how we can restore people's freedom and economic life rather than going through these constant lockdowns and these constant local shutdowns. So I'm afraid neither side comes out well. The government looks completely psychotic, imposing these restrictions on unwilling regions. And the regions are not putting up a good defense for their own freedom or their own economies because really they just want handouts to make things a bit easier We need people who are going to genuinely stand up for ordinary people and say no more lockdowns. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely right. But I think what was really quite hard to get your head around this week was what what exactly was the justification for moving Manchester up the tiers? I mean, it seems to get more perplexing and opaque as the weeks Mm. go by, because when the government said, you know, hospitals are going to be overwhelmed, they said, 
they basically selected some statistics because they're not really making most hospital statistics available. So they chose to. They said Manchester University Foundation NHS Trust is at 70% occupancy and Salford Royal NHS Foundation Trust is 91% occupied. Now, that might sound scary. That might sound like it's about to get full. You're going to have people dying on corridor beds. But they refused to give the context, which was that last year, during a pretty mild flu season, at exactly this time, the occupancy was 87% and 96% for those same hospitals, you know, several percentage points higher. And, you know, this has been one of the problems throughout the whole pandemic, where you have the government, the media and scientists using the kind of scariest figures possible, usually without any context, any caveats. And that leads them to take decisions that often make little sense. And it's quite clear now that much of the kind of local lockdown decisions are not being advised by SAGE, who we're all um, familiar with, who are opaque in their own way. But now we have the Joint Biosecurity Centre, which is this new kind of monitoring body. And they've basically come out and said that now they think that lockdowns should be instituted on a preventative basis. So in other words, areas will be going into lockdown when the actual number of cases is just nowhere near enough to justify it. So the strategy just becomes more and more bizarre, more and more detached from reality, and you know is inevitably going to lead to the kind of flare-ups we saw in, in Manchester. Ella? We know, because we've been living with this pandemic for months now, that scientifically there is nothing that lockdown does other than stop cases spreading. And even then, as we've been talking about on this podcast for the last few weeks, shutting down pubs and restaurants, which are, you know, sanitize you from toe to eyebrows, <laughs> are not where cases are spreading. It's more likely spreading when people are at home. And so it just is infuriating because it feels like they're making the same mistakes as last time. There's been no serious conversation about care homes. When was the last time you heard a big discussion about care homes and shielding care homes and resources for care homes in the media? We haven't for, for weeks and months, despite the fact that we know is that is where the virus can be most deadly. A cardiologist that I know in Liverpool is saying, well, yes, there is a spike going on, but you know, they have these nightingale hospitals. And we know that in the last wave of the virus back in spring, that it came out that lots of spaces in these nightingale hospitals weren't used. So mm. how about how about taking a different tack? It feels like the government's got its back up against the wall. And because things have got so political, as Brendan points out, in the back of their minds, they're thinking, right, well, we are going to lose all these red wall voters. And, and they're playing politics with that kind of stuff, with the way that they're dealing with the North in this very kind of cack-handed way. No one's actually saying, just stop a minute and maybe admit that what you've been doing is wrong. And the most frustrating thing is because we're now in the framework of emergency powers, of this is a pandemic, everyone keeps apologising for the government, actually, even the Labour Party apologising for them and saying, well, we know that this is very difficult. At what point are we going to say, actually, citizens are pissed off with you? Like the woman from Barnsley, who's 83, <laughs> who's been all over social media, who says, I don't give a sod. I might die in a few years. I don't want to spend my last few years being cooped up. It's the nuances and the real life experiences, to use that kind of awful phrase, that actually matters here. You can't, this isn't just a numbers game. People's lives are being affected. And so we need to start hearing from people. And it's quite likely that even though polls show that people are generally in favor of 
of lockdown measures that if you actually talk to people about what that means, a much more nuanced picture comes out. I can't see how anyone is in favour of these tier three restrictions when it makes absolutely no sense. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you're enjoying it so far, why not check out some of Spiked's other podcasts? Daniel McCarthy is the latest guest on The Brendan O'Neill Show. And with the US elections less than two weeks away, they discuss what's really at stake. Daniel talks about Trump's war on the liberal clerisy, the rise of bourgeois rioting, and why he thinks a Biden presidency would be anything but benign. We also have Culture Wars with Andrew Doyle, His latest guests are journalists Katie Herzog and Jesse Single, co-hosts of the hit podcast Blocked and Reported. Katie and Jesse take on cancel culture from a progressive perspective. They discuss how wokeness took over the world and what the US election means for the culture war. So once you've finished with this episode of the Spiked podcast, why not check out The Brendan O'Neill Show and Culture Wars with Andrew Doyle. Now, back to the Spiked podcast. Schools which teach ideas like white privilege as an uncontested fact are breaking the law, according to Equalities Minister Kemi Badenoch. In a debate about Black History Month in Parliament, the minister, herself of Nigerian descent, said, we don't want to see teachers teaching their white pupils about white privilege and inherited racial guilt. She's previously argued that supporters of what's often called critical race theory want to create a segregated society. She said that a great deal of supposedly anti-racist initiatives were creating a prison for black people by associating blackness with victimhood. But in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement, schools have been under pressure to revise their curriculums and to teach ideas from critical race theory. The Chartered College of Teaching, for instance, the professional body for teachers, has produced recommended readings for teachers on critical race theory and intersectionality. So it does seem to have really got into schools. Brendan, what are your thoughts on this? I thought Kemi Badenoch's speech in Parliament was actually quite important. And she touched on something very important, which is that the new so-called anti-racism or the new anti-racist theories are actually often quite racist and divisive. And they section people off according to their racial heritage, and they define people along those lines. So that whites come to be seen as privileged and oppressors and the beneficiaries of history and black people come to be seen as fragile victims and the victims of history and it's that kind of deterministic historical view of different groups I think is really problematic. And the fact that a figure like her is speaking out against it is really positive. Sometimes I worry that the focus on critical race theory is a bit narrow. Mm. I mean, I think critical race theory is is very, very problematic and has nothing in common with a noble cause of anti-racism of the past couple of hundred years. But I think sometimes the focus on critical race theory as the source of all these problems is a bit narrow. And I think it's much broader than that. I think we've got to bring in the broader identity politics, the role of corporations, the political class, the cultural elite, popular culture, 
social media, all of these things play a role in propagating the identitarian narrative and the divisive narrative and the culture of victimhood. I don't think we can put it down entirely to an academic theory that is starting to cross from universities into schools. So I think we need to broaden the scope of what we're talking about here. But generally speaking, I think what Kemi Badenoch is touching upon is something everyone has to take very seriously, which is that we live in this peculiar time in which anti-racists are completely and utterly obsessed with race, have rehabilitated the racial imagination, and now very casually, all the time, talk about people as racial creatures who have to engage with others through a racial narrative. How that has come about and how we challenge it, I think, are incredibly important questions for our time. Ella? I agree with that. And I think the difficult thing with this is it often gets framed as a sort of preventative measure. So you, that's why people are obsessed with schools and education. You've got mm. to get in early with the stuff. And that's why, you know, you've got a, on the one hand, a proliferation of quite often right wingers who are obsessed with march through the institutions and cultural Marxism and all of that kind of stuff. But actually it's the kind of obsession with critical race theory and also a sort of fetishization of racial difference in this sort of quasi-politically correct way has been around for a long time. But it feels like it's come to this very ugly point. And one of the more shocking things that happened this year has been the Channel 4 program, the school that tried to end racism, I think it's called, um, which was a kind of social experiment taking a class of kids from all different backgrounds and ethnicities and basically training them in critical race theory, talking to them about white privilege, taking the black kids um, and the BAME kids separately and talking to them about how they've been victimized and taking the white kids separately and talking to them about how they had this inherent thing, privilege within them that they had to learn how to suppress. And it was the most upsetting thing I've genuinely ever watched because it was it was tantamount to torturing these kids on both sides, actually, getting this sweet little black boy to cry about things that he'd never thought about before and getting an equally sweet little white ginger kid, maybe that's why I identified with him, uh, to <laughs> feel a horrendous and sort of crushing weight of guilt about you know, what his people, white people had done to his black friends. And at the end of the program, you could tell that none of these kids were going to be the same with each other as they were before. And the start of the program had showed them playing in the playground. And it's that destruction of social solidarity from a early age that I just can't understand why people would think is positive. I mean, I remember watching this interview with Big Nasty, who's become a bit of a celebrity years ago, in which BBC Three asked him, you know, should white people say Wagwan and the N-word? It was a bit of a sort of jokey interview, but he made this really serious point where he said, you know, where we come from, all of us are the same. It doesn't matter what we look at. I think he used the phrase, we're the colour of ghetto, because he was talking (laughs) about his upbringing in London. And that might sound cliche, but there is a serious element to that. You know, the sort of lefty in me says, well, this is a completely terrible thing for any kind of consideration of class solidarity, especially among kids from backgrounds that mean that they have really got everything in common, that that race has got nothing to do with their personal relationships. But it's that kind of destruction of social solidarity, which 
is disastrous for a fight against racist prejudice where it still exists. Because, you know, if it's not your fight because you're not black, then why would you get involved? And if the scene or the job or whatever situation it is, is not your scene because it's white, then why would you try? And I mean, what kind of dystopian world is that to bring kids up into? I think one of the interesting things about critical race theory is that it does see racism everywhere, even in the absence of sometimes being described as kind of seeing racism without racists. And by encouraging people to see every interaction or slight, or they talk a lot about microaggressions, for instance, as a product of of racism, it does persuade people to be on high alert. There's a part of me that thinks if you just left a lot of kids to it, they wouldn't be. The Channel 4 program is a good example because these were kids who were quite happily getting along with life, making friends with each other, not thinking about race. But then suddenly you have these critical race practitioners introducing this quite disturbing idea into them. And then obviously, you know, feeling very smug and and progressive about it. There was a point in that documentary where they showed, you know, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And then the voiceover immediately after that says, experts today now think that colorblindness is just as bad as racism or something along the lines like that. And you think these kind of great ideals of of anti-racism are being kind of torn down in front of our eyes, but ironically, in the name of anti-racism. Brendan? Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's what makes it so disturbing. I think the key point I would make about critical race theory and identitarianism and all these other hyper-racial worldviews is that this is these are the ideologies of the ruling class and mm. anyone who thinks that these are rebellious ways of thinking about the world or countercultural ways of thinking about the world are just kidding themselves these are the new means through which the ruling classes whether it's the capitalist elites or the political elites through which they seek to divide and rule And that's why these ideologies are so attractive to those kinds of people. So many corporations are embracing white privilege theory and foisting it on their workforce. In the US, a lot of them are inviting in people like Robin D'Angelo to come and lecture them about how to manage relations between the races, essentially. Huge sections of the political class are in favor of these kinds of ideologies they instinctively recognize that these are useful ways of understanding the world for people like them, because it means that they can distance us from each other and it means they can manage us more easily. And I think it all goes to show that identity politics is not left-wing at all. It's not radical at all. Identity politics is a species of neoliberalism in the sense that it is hyper-individuating and it constantly grates against solidarity, particularly solidarity in the workplace or solidarity amongst ordinary people, which is, of course, the thing that most terrifies people in positions of power. So I think that's a really important message to get across, especially to any kind of younger radical people coming of age. We have to try to explain to them the critical race theory and all the rest of it is just a trap. And if you really want solidarity between people, then those are the kinds of ideologies you've really got to take on and defeat. Thanks for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out some of Spike's other podcasts in the meantime? We have The Brendan O'Neill Show, in which Spike's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, 
Problems and Controversies of Life in the 21st Century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars, hosted by spiked columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This monthly podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.